Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. Our species has, of course, a psychobiological imperative to bond. That's what allowed our species to thrive. And our need to connect with each other for emotion co-regulation so that we can down-modulate our nervous system and our limbic structures and uh, requires that we be able to disclose how we feel to other human beings and through the magic of emotional mirroring and empathy and just having somebody who can look at us and somewhat mirror our emotional state, our affect states, limbic system, our nervous system uh, syncs with theirs, and then we become increasingly calm. The ability to bond with others, how we go about it, the success of our bonding, uh, whether we feel confident in being accepted and loved by others or appreciated is largely established, unfortunately, uh, in the first two years of life. I say unfortunately because it means that a lot of the uh, attachment, the most important influential events of our life that um, in many ways determine how well we can trust other human beings and who we seek to process is set at periods of our life before we develop explicit memories. In other words, uh, our emotional right hemisphere, which is shaped largely in the first four years of life, the bulk of its connections, which set our expectations of others, um, happen at a time we can't remember. And also, in our adult life, it's exceedingly difficult to address these underlying emotional beliefs. So, uh, 50% of us grow up in secure attachment styles. We're confident as babies to explore when, in the strange test, when a A mother or father brings the infant into a room with a stranger and then the caregiver slowly leaves the room, the child will first cry but then very quickly will become interested in the stranger, will bond, will connect and uh, will establish a new sense of security with someone else and then when the uh, parent returns that child will seek uh, connection, will seek uh, to be physically bonded again with the parent. The child explores the room confidently and expects the, uh, the best to happen. So um, when these children are observed in their home setting, they, uh, the parents are very sensitive to the child's emotional displays. They read the baby's distress signals and they meet their needs. And secure children uh, 
generally, in a, by adult life, when they're followed up longitudinally, the same babies now as adults, they generally reach their intellectual and creative potential. They generally have lasting relationships. They regulate their emotions well. Um, they have smaller amygdalas and statistically uh, secure children very, very rarely wind up with addiction or substance abuse. Uh, so uh, roughly about 20 to 20, 22 to 25 percent of the population is uh, anxious or uh, was also called ambivalent or preoccupied. These are infants that are don't have haven't developed a sense of confidence of the caregivers paying ongoing attention. They generally have parents who are stressed out, have multiple obligations, many other uh, children to take children to take care of, perhaps financial stressors. So the child is uh, constantly monitoring the caregiver to see if they'll maintain a connection. They, these children will not, they'll, they'll, interestingly enough, the anxious child will cling to the caregiver even before the caregiver leaves. So little is their sense of faith that the caregiver is paying attention and has their back. When, they, when the caregiver leaves, the child will not turn to the stranger in the room, will not uh, stop crying, and will not play with toys. And uh, this child will grow up to have all kinds of anxiety disorders, core shame. In relationships, they will uh, essentially have abandonment terror, which is a fear of the experience of being rejected or left. The greater amygdala activation means that they're they don't stay very long in homeostasis or parasympathetic state, states. They go into uh, sympathetic, hypervigilant states. They very often have digestive disorders in adult life and insomnia. And uh, the, of course, when you, we start talking about insecure people, we will start to see in longitudinal studies increased likelihood of substance abuse. Uh, with anxious, the level of substance abuse longitudinally climbs up to around 20-30%. Then we go to avoidant children, which rarely got any kind of uh, empathetic attunement. The parent was either depressed or emotionally unavailable or couldn't sync successfully with the child. And so in the strange test, this child doesn't really care when the caregiver leaves, and they don't care about the stranger. They've given up on uh, adults for emotion regulation. They weren't soothed by their own parents, so why do they care when the caregiver leaves? They, in fact, will turn towards the toys and play, or they might explore the room, but uh, not in the same uh, way that the secure child will explore the room. Uh, this child learns to downregulate its needs for others by blocking its subcortical awareness of feeling somatic states. And in adult life, this person, as we'll see, 
grows up to be remote, controlling, struggles with depression, will struggle making important decisions because the way we make important decisions in life is by checking in unconsciously with our somatic activations or markers, as Damasio called them. If you can't feel your body, if you systemically minimize your emotional awareness as a way to lessen your degree of dependence on other human beings and expressing your emotions to others, then it's really, really difficult to make any big decisions in life because you cannot feel into those markers which we rely on when we make poor choices. There's a myth that people make decisions logically using cognitive functions. In fact, the way we make our decisions is by visualizing different possibilities and then unconsciously checking the vagal structures of the front of our body to see if we feel relaxed or tight and frightened or excited. Um, so if you can't feel your body, you'll struggle to make decisions. If you'd like to read more about that, check out the work of Antonio Damasio and Descartes' era, uh, famous neuropsychologist. So um, in avoidant children, the statistics of long-term substance abuse climbs even higher, and we start seeing more significant numbers. I don't remember off the top of my head, but uh, I do believe it's closer, it's above 20%, it's closer to 50%, and then we will, with the final group, disorganized, which are children who were frightened of their caregivers, and when the caregiver would return, the child would sort of move forward and away from, if it, if it returned to touch the parent, it would be pulling away. Sometimes the child, when the caregiver would leave, would hide or even hide before the caregiver left. And um, these individuals uh, over the course of a lifetime have extremely heightened risks of PTSD and extremely heightened long-term susceptibility to both uh, compulsive behaviors and of course addiction climbs up well above 50%. Uh, in fact, some uh, studies I read, it was closer to 75%. So um, we see how important the, the bonding experiences are in the first few years of life and how it plays long-term ramifications on our adult behaviors. Now, given all that, it might be tempting in the fact that attachment styles are very sticky, so somewhat uh, the Tavistock and other clinics say as high as 75% of us will stay in our attachment style from age one through our adult life. We don't have to. And some of the standard ways we would approach uh, addressing attachment disturbances that lead to difficulty in establishing long-term relationships and feeling the ability to trust others in addiction and uh, compulsive behaviors and so forth. One of the most classic ways in which we talk about, of course, is developing an internal object constancy of a safe being that cares about us. So we're essentially uh, healing the damaged attachment model that's in, that is 
deeply interjected into our right hemisphere, our right brain, we're slowly over time creating a substitute healthy, caring figure. In some 12-step uh, programs, the people use God as an attachment figure. It's just this idea that there's a theistic entity that is available, that cares about us, and that creates a substitute attachment figure that helps people feel secure. If you don't feel the presence in your life of a being that will help you process difficult experiences, it will be exceedingly difficult to uh, explore the world, to feel confident in relationships, to take risks, to pursue authentic uh, desires like expressing yourself artistically, creatively, because if you don't believe there's people there to help you process the emotions when things turn out badly, we won't want to take the risk. So to take a risk, to be, to embrace our lives, we need to feel the presence of beings that will help regulate us. And so in many programs, people at first will use God as an attachment figure or some spiritual deity. And hopefully then they start developing relationships with actual human beings who can actually emotionally co-regulate them. But there's also another way besides, and there's of course the therapeutic model where you meet with somebody who works in counseling. That's what I do, but I'm not fishing for, <laughs> uh, I've already full up. Uh, but uh, the, the role of working in counseling or therapy is to offer people unconditional support, empathy, uh, a, a, a sort of a kind regard to help them work through uh, and help support them while they take risks and embrace new um, behaviors in their life. So, but a new way we'll be talking about tonight of addressing these attachment wounds uh, is through the way we make sense of our life, the way we narrate our experiences. Making sense of our life actually uh, has been shown in a number of therapeutic modalities to actually help minimize some of the damage of early attachment wounds, and it also um, minimizes the likelihood that we will, if we choose to have children, that it minimizes the risk that we will pass down our attachment styles to our children. Essentially what this boils down to is um, how we make sense or meaning out of the events of our lives. And uh, so I'll just read some of the people that are doing it. So if you're interested, you can find out more because there's only so much I could introduce in a half hour talk. Um, Dan Siegel, famous attachment uh, neuropsychologist. Harleen Anderson and um, et al. have developed collaborative therapy, which is for people with dual diagnosis and they use narrative techniques in helping people make meaning of their lives as a way to uh, address dual diagnosis, especially that's, dual diagnosis is when there's a significant psychiatric disorder, such as bipolar, and then substance abuse. So 
Uh, they've developed a successful strategy. Uh, Albert Ellis with REBT therapy in the 1960s. EMDR uses a lot of uh, the ability to narrate uh, trauma, traumatic events in its modality. The attachment interview of Mary Main. Uh, Samilov and Goldfried uh, wrote extensive clinical studies on how linking a, uh, explicit language-based storytelling with the emotional events of our life can lead to healing and emotion co uh, auto-regulation and so on and so forth. So one example is uh, in uh, addressing trauma. Individuals during a traumatic event, say a, a car accident or the sudden loss of an attachment figure or perhaps a soldier in war, when a traumatic event happens, the wounds are so, the emotional events are so overwhelming, the release of neurotransmitters such as norepinephrine, uh, cortisol, uh, uh, acetylcholine, are essentially overwhelm the left hemisphere's hippocampus, which is the small region of the brain we rely on to make narrative memories of life. We, it allows us to tell a story of, of our day or things that have happened to us. So if your hippocampus is knocked offline when you're in the middle of a traumatic event, um, the results are really uh, uh, destabilizing, to say the least. When you can't turn an event into a story, they, uh, some of the images, the sensations, but especially the impulses that you felt to survive are stored in your right hemisphere, largely using the temporal uh, orbital frontal lobe, but there's nothing to make sense of all of these emotions and these, these trace impulses to survive, these, uh, these feelings. And without it, without the story, your brain cannot determine that the trauma happened in the past. The right hemisphere has no sense of a past. Everything is still happening in it until it finally experiences that it's not happening. So if you have a trauma, literally if you have a serious bike accident, each time you get back on the bike, you'll expect to have another bike accident until slowly through exposure therapy, you know, your right hemisphere has enough safe bike rides to finally realize, okay, I shouldn't necessarily expect to be injured when I get, every time I get on a bike. But that takes a lot of, again and again and again, putting yourself into situations that are triggering and frightening. In EMDR therapy, what they do is they help people go into the scattered images and feelings, and through some form of bilateral stimulation, they develop the ability of the left hemisphere to narrate the, the events that happened 
the feelings into a coherent story. And when that happens, interestingly enough, the left brain, which has a sense of past, present, and future, because it's all about narrative and chronology and about time, when, it, when we take something that's lodged in our right brain and we narrate it and we turn it into a story, suddenly the brain becomes aware that that event is no longer happening anymore. That I'm not back in, you know, Afghanistan being shot at. That I'm not about to be attacked on a street corner by a random individual. That I'm not uh, about to uh, have a car accident or whatever. So there's a very important development that happens when the narrative faculties of the brain can begin to collaborate and turn feelings, emotions, survival impulses into a story. So uh, the key to making sense is putting events into words in a coherent chronological sequence where we can make sense of why the things happen. That includes why other people behave the way they did towards us. And how we ourselves were affected by the event, and then what we did to address these emotional experiences. So that's the kind of narrative goal that will help us essentially process wounding events and help us begin the process of healing, making sense of it. So let me give you some examples of what are successful and unsuccessful attempts to narrate uh, wounding life events. Secure individuals generally do this quite well. Um, I by no means was born secure. I had a secure relationship with my mom, but with my father, who was a violent drunk, I had a disorganized relationship. So it took me years and years of therapy to become what's called finally earn secure, which took <laughs> decades. Um, but a coherent account of a relational events, again, will explain why the people acted the way they did, uh, how it affected us, and uh, how we addressed it. So I'm going to give you an example from my own life of a way that I made sense of uh, some early events. So here goes. My father had PTSD from his strict punishing mother and from the war experiences he endured in World War II. He turned to alcohol to process his anger and fear. As his moods would change quickly from relaxed conversations to sudden rage, I spent much of my childhood avoiding him. I didn't feel close nor safe. His mood disorder played a significant role in my social anxieties, my insomnia, and my reliance upon mood-altering substances. Later, when I became sober in my 30s, I learned in therapy to express the pain and anger I had suppressed and grew to understand how my father's rage developed from his own early experiences. In so doing, his presence became less triggering for me and we became closer in the last decade of his life. So in that, I hope you hear that I've communicated uh, and you know, how my dad's rage and sudden mood shifts 
left in me uh, anxiety disorder and the need to auto-regulate through alcohol. The long-term effects were of substance abuse, then finally getting sober and going into therapy to deal with it and so forth. So you hear, hopefully, a chronological story starting early, then having a middle, then an end, and a sense of my understanding of what caused my father's, uh, his alcoholism, which was his early childhood and events in the war. So in this story, I am not a helpless victim. I actually had agency, and I have actually an understanding that I'm not being picked on by the universe. I have a sense that there's a legacy that's, being, that's been passed down to me. And in, get, in giving myself agency, I actually can process some of the wounding events and can take actions on my behalf. So let me give you examples now of some not good uh, uh, approaches to narrating one's own life. Dismissing people, people who are avoidant, tend to suppress their emotions and all their important relational events from their autobiography. They will give a neutral list of facts that will have very little emotional weight to them. So um, I'm gonna, this I made up from a number of people I've, made, I've met in counseling over the years. Um, this is just an example of how uh, uh, an avoidant person might narrate. I don't remember much of my childhood. We had enough food on the table, roof over our heads, so what's to tell? Maybe my mom was anxious when my dad lost his job, but he found work eventually, so it turned out okay. They gave me a good education. That's the size of it. What's your next question? So what you have here is classically someone who's minimizing really uh, powerful and painful emotional events of their life. I mean, they're clearly hinting at the fact that there was a period where their father lost his, his job, became, uh, the mother became really anxious, uh, the person has essentially alighted over that entirely. And there's a dry list of, uh, of, uh, of uh, essentially issues that have nothing to do with this person's emotional life. Things like, we had enough food on the table, roof over our heads, I got a good education, what more could I ask? Essentially, this person is diminishing all of the emotional events of their life and simply reducing uh, childhood and attachment to getting resources handed over, but no sense of the need for emotional touch, care, attention, and kindness. Interestingly enough, when longitudinal clinicians who observed avoidant babies in their childhood family structures they would clearly see that there was little emotional connection between the child and the parent. Yet when they followed up 30 years later, the grown child would say, oh, everything was great. We had a food, we had a table over our heads, we had clothes, you know, there was nothing wrong at all. So they will, they are, they've successfully denied that any of their childhood played any role. And if you ever go to 
any 12-step group, you'll hear people who uh, love to pronounce that, you know, yeah, I was a low-bottom suicidal alcoholic, but my parents were great. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you believe the uh, hype. Um, anxious. Uh, these people are quite the opposite. Uh, emotional feelings will be listed in no real coherent order. There will be a kind of flooding of feelings, but no story to it. Uh, autobiographical uh, images will be uh, essentially jumped about. And there will be little ability to understand why caregivers or important people acted the way they did. So uh, an anxious person might say, my mother was always on my case. She was closer to my sister. That's still true today. When my sister and I argue, she takes my sister's side. If we were both yelling, it would somehow wind up my fault. Last week, my mother spent the day with my sister but didn't invite me to join them until it was evening. She's rarely there when I need to talk to her. So what we have is somebody who's jumping about in time, has uh, no chronology, uh, no story to it, just a sort of list of feelings, and no understanding as to what events in the mother's life might have led to her inability to bond with her daughter or her son. So the feelings come across, but they don't suggest any understanding. Now, if we look at the uh, avoidant person who minimizes their emotions, if you're listening to that person, you'll have nothing to empathize with, because that person hasn't listed any vulnerable feelings, hasn't conveyed how the important emotional events of their life has affected them. So you can't help emotionally co-regulate them down to a state of security or help them work through painful events. So um, people who are avoidant rely on auto-regulation, auto-regulating every emotional event in their life. They don't get the kind of empathy that all human beings need because they don't present to other people the vulnerable experiences of their life. On the other hand, Anxious people also diminish the possibility of um, being regulated by friends and therapists and so forth because the story is so chaotic without any clear narrative or chronology that the person listening struggles to understand exactly what has happened. They're hearing a lot of feelings which they will try to empathize and mirror and emotionally connect with, but very often they'll struggle to follow any story or any event that the person's conveying because the experience gets lost in the just the flood of emotional experiences. And the disorganized has qualities of both, along with the fact that disorganized people will very often relate horrific events of self-abuse or trauma with an extremely flat affect. So for me, it's really challenging at times to properly empathize because I have no idea 
how these horrific experiences were felt, processed, what the person experienced. They're just giving me a, a really scary story, but without any indication of what they did to survive or how they processed. So um, the key, again, is to learn how to turn emotional experiences into a story that we can convey to others so that they will understand and that they can help not only limbically co-regulate us to a state of uh, safety so that we can process collaboratively our experiences. And we do that through a chronological order. We try to understand the actions of others, mentalize, as it's called, why people did the things they did, rather than deprive ourselves of agency by simply saying, all this shit happened, I have no idea why. We try to grasp how the events affected our behaviors or our mental states. And we try to also then finally know any adaptive actions we took to heal. If we can come up with a story that meets even a few of these milestones, then not only do we maximize the possibility of our beginning the process of healing ourselves after wounding you know, ends of relationships, loss of job, tensions in friends and roommates, etc. Uh, but we also maximize the possibility that when we connect with another human being, they'll be able to successfully help us in the process of healing. So I hope that was remotely interesting. Uh, that's tonight's talk. And now we're going to do, as always, a meditation where we first uh, develop a rest and digest state, but then we're also going to put into practice some of the tools I mentioned. We're going to start with feelings stemming from early childhood and then move on to a recent relational event. So thanks for listening. Let's take a moment to find a really comfortable position. The only suggestion I have, I really believe that everybody should find their own, by feeling into your body, find your own posture. Nobody can reach into your brain and body and tell you what will be best suited for your practice. But I would gently suggest that most of the time if we lift our chin up a little bit, tilt our head up like we're looking at a, the top of a tall building, that's generally quite helpful in that it prevents the head from slouching in front of the chest and makes it more likely that we will <laughs> maintain a good alignment and connection with the sensations arriving from the body below. So we're going to take, as usual, our normal series of breaths together just to send some messages from the body up to the brain saying it's okay to relax settle down. So just take a nice full in-breath through the nose if that's available and squinch the muscles in your face, clench the jaw, 
furrow the forehead, the brow, pinch the nose, tighten the micro muscles around the eyes, and as you breathe out through the mouth, relax all those muscles, release the jaw, smooth out the forehead, relax the micro muscles around the eyes, encourage the eyes to float in the eye sockets like uh, you're, they're in a sensory deprivation tank, and now it's their turn just to relax. I found in my own practice that when my eyes settle, my mind soon follows. possible try to stretch the corners of the mouth slightly wide apart so that you have a extended sort of neutral expression on the mouth and then for a second complete in-breath lifting the shoulders way high and then begin to rotate the back to open up the chest. And as you breathe out to the mouth, drop the shoulders, releasing any tension in the arms. They have now two lifeless limbs hanging from your torso. And then for a final breath in the series, I breathe in, bloat your belly. Just imagine like your belly is pulling in the air and it's inflating the balloon. So you get a nice round belly. And then as you breathe out through your mouth, releasing the out breath. And from this point on in the practice, see if you can, one, focus on abdominal breathing, which means feeling the inhalation and a gradually expanding belly and then the exhalation, a very soft easing of the abdominal muscles. And we're going to try to incline our out-breath to be much longer than the in-breath. A good ratio is twice as long as the in-breath. So if you can count to three while you breathe in, try to count to six in your mind as you breathe out. The longer your exhalations, the more your brain releases acetylcholine. And, not your brain, excuse me, your vagal nerve structures in your chest. And that helps, again, lower your heart rate, your blood pressure. Now that we've settled the body a bit, try to cultivate in your mind that state you arrive in on the first day of a long vacation. When 
you no longer have any place to go, nothing to do, and any sense of racing ahead to accomplish anything in your life is utterly disinteresting. You're, you've arrived at a moment in time where you just want to land in your life, where your mind wants to, doesn't want to go anywhere. It just wants to receive all the sensations and impressions around you. Like when you reach a beautiful vista overlooking a body of water or a mountain range. You just want to drink in the experience. You don't want it to pass. You're not rushing or hoping that this moment will pass at all. And as we move into silence, last uh, notice, no doubt, soon enough, your mind will wander away from the breath and hearing the sounds of the air conditioner and the feeling of uh, yourself sitting on the ground and any other body sensations. And your mind will go off with a little virtual reality in the mind, a fantasy or a memory or a thought. And for this, for the time being, when you realize you're lost in thought, don't feel that you've done anything wrong or made any mistake or aren't doing your practice right, far from it. Every time you wake up from a thought, it's a yet another wonderful opportunity to neurally ingrain the way back to the present. It's like you're given another opportunity to find a new path home to your body.
So at this point, bring to mind one of the important attachment figures from your childhood. This could be a parent, uh, an older sibling, a close family individual, anyone that just pops to mind, don't judge whoever comes to mind, just choose one figure that was emotionally resonant from your childhood. And then as you hold this person or this person's name in your awareness, bring to mind one word that summarizes the way this person related to you. One word that describes the how they were in this relationship with you. So that could be words like available, unavailable, safe, scary, distant, caring, unreliable, steady. Don't overthink the word. Don't try to be... We just want your right brain to just offer up any word that summarizes this relationship. And then see if you can come up with a memory that goes along, that fits. With this word. So for example, if you're thinking of a father who was unreliable, you might have a memory of being surprised that he was caring or attentive during a situation where in the past he had been remote or aloof, or vice versa, a time when you really sought out his support and found him to be disinterested. Again, just try to fit the label of the relationship with an actual memory. Once you have that memory, see if you can have a sense of why this attachment figure acted the way they did. Whether 
it was a good or bad memory, painful or otherwise, what was going on in their life, what had happened to them in their own childhood that might have played a role in their behavior. And now see if you can link how this experience or this tendency of this attachment figure, how it influenced some of your adult behaviors. How was this quality, how did it affect you? Lastly, what have you done if some of the effects were not beneficial? What have you done to address, to claim agency in your life? seeking help, talking, creative endeavors, sobriety, addressing compulsive behaviors, support groups. Now let's briefly put this practice into place with a recent event. Think of a recent interpersonal disappointment or just a resonant interpersonal event. And simply we're going to narrate this by thinking of something that happened right before the experience, like what the relationship was like, then what happened during the resonant event, and then what has happened to the relationship subsequently. So for example, I had a roommate, I didn't 
know them very well. Then we got into an argument about uh, cleaning up or who does their fair share of work around the house. And ever since then, it's been tense being around them. Now see if you can attribute what factors might have led the other significant person in this narrative to act the way that they acted without being harsh, judgmental. From an empathetic perspective, if at all possible, what was it stress? Overwhelm, fear, early childhood, attachment wounds, what might have led to their behavior? How did this experience affect you emotionally? What how has it affected you in any way, behaviorally, feelings, sense of security? Lastly, what have you done to heal or gain a sense of meaning from this experience? If not, what have you done? What would you like to do? That could be Restoring the relationship through talking it out in a safe way. Or finding a new relationship to replace this old one. 
whatever feels like an an act of healing. moment I'm going to ring the bell and just take your time to open your eyes and let go of any memories that you're encouraged to bring any feelings you've connected with with you into the rest of the evening don't try to push away any affects that might have presented themselves 